Hello and welcome to New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. Today we're going to focus on online games and virtual worlds. Specifically, we'll examine and probably dispel some of the myths about massively multiplayer online role-playing games and the people who play them. To help us with our discussion, we have Nick Yee, a senior research scientist who studies gamer behavior at Ubisoft and the author of the new book, the Proteus Paradox, How Online Games and Virtual Worlds Change Us and How They Don't. Nick, welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Jasmine. It's a pleasure. Can you give the audience some of your background? How did you get into this field? Sure. I've, uh, I've always been a, a gamer. You know, I grew up in Hong Kong. I still have these recollections of playing, you know, the first version of SimCity, the first version of, of Civilization on a, on a PC. Um, and when I was a uh, undergrad in college, these two seniors a year ahead of me were doing their their senior theses on um, the personality differences of gamers in different game genres, and they were they were somewhat pushing back against this notion that all gamers are are a monolithic group, which we kind of still hold on to sometimes when the media reports on gamers. Sure. And so they, they looked at um, a first-person shooter, um, Quake, a uh, real-time strategy game, uh, StarCraft, and they looked at a, a MMO, uh, uh, EverQuest, which had just come out a year. So this was in 1998, 1999. Okay. And uh, at that point, none of us had actually played an MMO. And so they got the psych department to go out and buy them a copy. And I was a lab tech. Uh, that year, so I installed the game for them, and we all tried the game, but I was the only one who liked it. Um, and so I, I played EverQuest for one semester, and then the next semester, I went to our common thesis advisors. So I was still a junior that year. I said, "Doug, I think there's something really, really interesting going on in these games, and no one's really studying them seriously." Um, and Doug was actually teaching us how to hand code HTML and how to run web surveys. Again, this was back in 1999, mm-hmm. um, alongside teaching us the big five in personalized psychology. And so he said, you know, sure, let's let's run web surveys of these online gamers. It makes a lot of sense since, since these people were already online. And so that's how it started. You know, I, I started running surveys on the demographics and motivations of EverQuest players. Um, and so I've, I've been studying gamers for almost 15 years now um and it's it's been a blast so i started doing online surveys i went to grad school at stanford started doing lab experiments on putting people in virtual reality asking um you know when you give someone a taller avatar or a short avatar how do their behaviors in in a virtual world change um and from that i got into using techniques to look at real uh, game data from the server side. So, you know, what does it mean to look at thousands of variables over millions of players in a game like World of Warcraft and uh, what kind of data and what kind of findings could you extract from from that front? So it's really been uh, a journey from the surveys to the experiments to the large-scale data analysis over, over the past decade. Wow. Now, you also ran a blog, I believe, uh, or a website called The Deadless Project? Yeah, exactly. So The, the Dallas Project was where I um, 
it was my hub for the online survey. So it was it was essentially like the community engagement tool for both presenting the findings um, from the surveys as well as attracting uh, new players to to participate. Um, and so was this it, like for me it was really an experiment because you know as social scientists we're, we're trained to to not to really share findings academically in journals, but less so of how do you actually do it with, with your participants and with the community that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was for me a real experiment. And I, I think it really um, shaped how I thought about doing research that I always thought about, you know, what topics are interesting to both academics as well as the, the community that you're studying. And, you know, even when I was writing the book, that was really very much a part of it was how do I write a book that's interesting to, to a lay audience, to gamers, as well as to academics. Sure. Now, when you're writing The Proteus Effect, what was the impetus for this book? What made you want to write a book about it? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm one of those people who who I always wanted to write a book. It was something that I was always interested in doing. Um, and when I finished my, um, my, my graduate program, this was back in 2007, I started, you know, exploring, you know, if I wanted to write a book, what would it look like? So I chatted with book agents, um, and we had several initial ideas, but, you know, I started a new job and I just kind of got overwhelmed with everything. So I kind of put that aside for a while and it just felt like the right time again in 2012 when I, when I got contacted by Yale who eventually published my book. Um, and it was really a point in time where um, I felt I had done, you know, such a wide variety of work in, in the field and I wanted to put it in a package that uh, made sense to, to a general audience. I think I'd always been joking with my parents that they they really had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, they, they, they could say, you know, he was studying the, the psychology of online games and virtual worlds, but I think it was really difficult for them to, to grok what that, that meant. Um, and I'd written, you know, so many academic papers over the years, but I, I really saw writing a, a book targeted at a general audience as, as a real challenge. And it, that's, it really turned out to be that way. Um, that we're so, as you know, PhDs in academics, we're so trained to, to do academic speak. And it's so easy to write academic papers and to write in that style that it's often sure. difficult to do the exact opposite <laughs> is how do you write for, for a general audience who has no idea you know, about your, your field's topics and paradigms and, and traditions. Um, and so it was the right time, you know, to really synthesize the research and, and to, to write that book. And it, it came about at, at a good time for me. So what is the Proteus Paradox? It's, uh, <laughs> so the book, The Central Argument, is that we often have a lot of these assumptions of what online games and virtual worlds are, that they're escapist fantasies or places where people go to, to relax. They're about fantasy, freedom, and, and fun. And the book is really about deconstructing those myths that more often than not, it's the exact opposite, um, that people describe um, being an online game, their their gameplay as a, as a second job. Uh, superstitions pervade these worlds. Um, your your gender, your biological sex in the, in the offline world and your ethnicity and your skin color in the offline world matter 
in these virtual worlds in these completely unexpected ways. And alongside those, there are these powerful and unique psychological levers to change and control how people behave and, and think. And so the book's really about pushing back against those assumptions and saying, no, like take another look at what's really going on in these virtual worlds. Great. Now, you're talking about how things like race and gender and age matter. So I guess explaining for a regular audience, why do these things matter or how do they matter with respect to these um, online games and virtual worlds? Yeah. Um, let me let me start with one example about with, with gender. And so we, um, we asked players in World of Warcraft, you know, what their stereotypes are. Uh, of preferred activities by men and women in these worlds were. And so the the highest, most strongly stereotyped belief for female gamers is healing. So both men and women believe um, that women prefer to heal in these games. And uh, we started with a survey, and then we actually dived in the game. So World of Warcraft provides publicly accessible in-game metrics for all active characters in the game. So there are millions of, of players. You can just type in in a query, you know, their their character name, and you, you get thousands of uh, updated variables for that character down to the level of how many virtual hugs they've ever given mm-hmm. in World of Warcraft. And so we, we got this, you know, stereotype survey, and we went in the game. Uh, we paired... Um, the the survey data to get the the gender of players with their actual in-game metrics so thousands of players participate in in this in, in the main survey in this study and we found that the the stereotype was false so men and women heal just as much or just as little the same amount when they're playing World of Warcraft where there was a difference was in the avatar gender so the character gender mm-hmm. so what we found was that female avatars healed a lot more than male avatars and the effect was entirely driven by by gender bending when players play a character of the opposite gender so when men gender bend and they play a female character they heal more and when women gender bend and uh, they play a male character, they heal less. So there's this gender stereotype partly tied to how we think about normative male and female roles in the real world that you know women are supposed to be more supportive and nurturing. It is reflected in the game world in the form of a, a stereotype for healing. It turns out to be false, um, but it's being made true via play because of the assumptions and the stereotypes of how women and women behave. So when people play World of Warcraft, they experience a world where female avatars do heal more than male avatars. And so there's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that makes it true. And so, you know, we think of a virtual world as presumably a place where we can explore and be free of real world norms. But in fact, they're, they're a place where real world norms can, are perpetuated um, in, in powerful ways. And, you know, that's one example of, of how gender played a role uh, in the game. Hmm. Now, we're using terms like online games, virtual worlds, MMOs, but perhaps we could, you know, maybe define those for for the audience and for our listeners. So what are MMOs or MMORGs? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's a mouthful. So MMORPG (laughs) was the original term. It's why I have stopped using it. It's massively multiplayer 
online role-playing games. Right. So they're, they're virtual worlds with um, either a fantasy, uh, like a medieval fantasy, a, a futuristic space uh, uh, fantasy. They're, they're worlds with specific thematic settings where thousands or millions of people around the world can log on. The world is persistent whether people are logged on or, or not. So the world keeps happening and other players are in the world whether you're on, in the world or not. Um, you log on on your computer um, and you you customize and create your own avatar, your character in the game, and you interact with other players via you know chat or, or voice chat over the microphone. And you... The basic... Um, Gameplay goes on a typical uh, cycle where you kill, you know, monsters. They drop weapons and and gold, and so you take those that what's called loot um, to buy better weapons and better armor to kill bigger creatures. Mm-hmm. And as this goes on, it becomes more and more difficult to do things on your own. And so you group up with the other players first in two player teams, and then in five player teams in World of Warcraft up to you know twenty five player teams. And that's where the real um, social science questions come into play is, is what happens when you have people, you know, as young as 11, as old as 70 working in 25 player groups, um, over four hours at a stretch, you know, what are the, the interpersonal dynamics, the, the player motivations, the personality issues that come into play, um, in these, in these virtual worlds and what are, and what does it mean, you know, to, to have this virtual identity, to have these social groups um, in in these virtual worlds, where players on average spend you know twenty hours a week, um, and really the the underlying question in the book is it's not about the game per se, but you know what does it mean to be human in a in a digital world, and the the game is really just the context in which I'm studying that that fascinating and much larger question. Sure. Now we're talking about virtual worlds in these games and how they're hugely popular, particularly World of Warcraft. You have things like EverQuest and Final Fantasy and, and various others, but that means they're attracting a lot of, of players. But what makes virtual worlds in these games and, and the technology attractive? Um, so early on in my in my research, I really focused on that question of, of player motivation. And there are there are three prongs, you know. There are three sets of core motivations in these online games. There's the achievement prong, which is all about uh, power in different forms, whether it's power over monsters, leveling up quickly, power over other players in the form of competition and, and dominating other players in in combat and duels, um, or power is a form of knowledge, you know. So just getting better at the game and understanding the rules underlying the game. The second prong is a social prong, so different ways of relating to other players, whether that's making friends, you know, conversing with them, chatting with them in the game, being in collaborative teams, um, and so forth. And the last prong is the immersion prong of, of really different ways of being part of the story of the world, whether that's, you know, the discovery and exploration of the of different zones, uh, finding secrets in the world, um, 
role playing, so you know, creating a persona for your character, um, and and just the sheer joy of, of being immersed uh, in the world. And in each of those three prongs, you know, there are different levels of, of which you can look at it. So you know, let's like look at the achievement prong. Um, you know, there there are a certain number of mechanics in the game that you know reward players for for achievement and for leveling up. So it's the the points, the shinier armor, uh, the treadmill, so to speak, of, of the game progression. You know, but when I talk to players, you know, and ask them, you know, tell me about why you play the game. You know, some players they'll say, you know, it's because, um, you know, in the real world, I I feel I'm not making you know progress. I'm, I feel like I'm I'm stuck in my job. It's a great job. I've had you know um, a you know mid thirties lawyer who who said that she plays World of Warcraft for two hours a day because it lets her experience a sense of progress that she she desires as as a personality trait, but that she's not getting enough of um, in her offline job, which is fascinating because she was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so it really depends on the player. So for some players, it's that sense of progression. For other players, it's the, it's the sense of community that there's a, they can meet people from halfway around the world and, and interact with them. Uh, for other players, it's keeping in touch with their family and friends that rather than just talk on the phone, they can actually, you know, work for an hour together on this really challenging task in the game or a quest in the game. Uh, for other players, it's the, the immersion of, of being, a, instead of reading a book, um, about uh, Legolas or Gimli in in the in uh, Middle Earth, what does it mean? What if they could be, you know, a character in a living, breathing world? So there are a wide variety of motivations that that pull people into these games. Um, but once they're there, they're forced to work with each other. And again, that's where the magic starts from a from a research standpoint. Is how do these how do these different motivations play out in a group? And that's where all these tensions arise when people players want different things. And so you know how to how do player groups and player organizations called guilds, you know, resolve these conflicts when players are, are in these games. Um, and so it's, it's that, that range of behavior from the individual to the, to the group, to the community level that gets really interesting. Now we're talking about the players on this. And when we think about the, the idea of the, the gamer or the game player in popular culture, there is a certain stereotype related to the gamer, like what we see in TV or on movies, um, etc. I remember an episode of Numbers had an episode all about gaming and online worlds. But how does that image of gamers and gaming and popular culture stand up to what you found um, in your studies? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so when when uh, video games first appeared in in popular culture in the uh, in the seventies in the form of arcade games, they were they were stereotyped as a a adult activity because they these arcade games were in bars and clubs mm-hmm. where only adults would be. And so when when video ga- games first came out, they they were stereotyped as exact opposite of what they're stereotyped as now as being a you know a pastime for for kids with nothing better to do. Um, but you know in the 80s there was this very dramatic shift and Dimitri Williams who's a professor of communication has really looked at that paradigm shift where um, the media started talking more and more of these games as a as a teenage pastime, and more specifically, a male teenager pastime. Um, that they were linking up the, the violence in games with a you know what in one Newsweek article the author said was a you know kind of like a deeply primal 
biological drive for, for boys to hunt. You know, so the media really consistently wove the connection between, you know, games and, and teenagers. Um, and that's really what we're, we're deeply entrenched in now. But when, you know, I've looked at these games and other researchers have looked at the demographics behind these gamers, um, and so when you look at video games as a whole, you know, the average age is right around 30. Um, the, the gender distribution is about, you know, 60, 40. In these online games like EverQuest and World of Warcraft in particular, um, the, the average age of, age of players, you know, again, right around 30, um, the, there's a huge gender skew, about 80% men, 20% women, um, about 50 of them because of the age range. They work full time. The other half are, are mostly Students, or they do half half. A third of these players um, are married. You know, about uh, one out of five of them uh, have children of their own. Um, and so it's a really it's a really diverse group. And it's probably thirty is probably older than you would have you know pegged these players to be. And uh, you know the the really interesting um, statistic that I mentioned earlier is that you know given that most half of these gamers have uh, real life jobs or working forty hours a week, what's surprising is that the average time that these game gamers play is is twenty hours a week, and it doesn't change by age. There's no correlation with excuse me with age, and so younger and older players play right around you know twenty hours. And at first, that's really shocking to non gamers. I mean, that's that's half a job you know, e- right. you know each week. <laughs> Um, you know, but the, the average, you know, American watches around, you know, 28 hours of TV a week. And so what these gamers are doing is, is essentially they're displacing, you know, one media, you know, for, for another. They're still watching, you know, a bit of TV, uh, but they're trading a lot of that with their, with their game hours. And so, you know, in, in that light, you know, 20 hours doesn't seem that, that dramatic when you compare it with the TV hours. Um, you know, but as a whole, you know, these, these gamers are not, you know, jobless teenagers, you know, most of them are, you know, college students or, or, you know, early professionals with families of their own. Right. And we were talking about the image of the gamer, but we also have in popular culture, the image of the effects of gaming or the uh, online gaming addiction that perhaps is inherent anytime someone portrays gaming and gamers Yeah. uh, in popular culture. Uh, Have you found that kind of uh, addiction or negative effects of gaming in the in the studies that you've done. Yeah, and it's it's a very you know complicated topic. Uh, you know, and the the American Psychological Association is you know is talking uh, and debating about whether there should be an actual category for this in the the diagnostic manual for for psychologists. Uh, and it's complicated because how, of how loaded, you know, the word addiction is, you know, that it started off as a term we use for physical substance abuse. And, you know, in colloquial terms, you'll have people who say, you know, I was addicted to watching Lost. Um, and, you know, addiction has this really fuzzy meaning in, in popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's, here's what, here's what we know and what's clear. What's clear is that some people do play these online games to their own detriment. And by that, I mean that it starts having a negative impact on their, on their relationships, on their work life, on their, uh, on their schoolwork and so forth. So that much, it, it's not in question at all. Um, that they're players who play and it has a negative impact, uh, on, on their, on their lives. Um, and I think when you put it in those terms that some people play too much and it has a negative impact and, you know, we should help those people to try to, to manage and balance their lives. I don't think anyone would, would argue. I think gamers, gamers recognize that themselves. Um, you know, in the literature, what we found is when we look at, uh, 
players who have these these problems with gaming, they almost always have um, a a not underlying but as a, a parallel problem that they're dealing with, and it's almost. Uh, always, you know, anxiety, depression, or self-esteem issue. Um, and when uh, psychologists and, and therapists have looked into this, um, in many of the papers, what tends to happen uh, is that it's not only they happen at the same time, but they it's that underlying problem that tends to be driving the attachment to the game. And that a lot of these players, what they're doing is, is it's kind of like a failed uh, attempt at self-treatment. Mm-hmm. That they they're feeling depressed or they're feeling anxiety, and they start using the game as a crutch, and it actually works for for some people. So some people with you know mild um, depression issues or with social anxiety issues are able to kind of work themselves through those anxieties in in this context, in the gaming context, where they start meeting people in the game and they kind of build up confidence that way. But for other players, it, it's a failed attempt. That you know the pro they they, uh, they have a, a depression problem in real life. They're going through through some kind of marital crisis or they're unemployed, they start playing the game and they get um, attached to the the temporary fleeting sense of, of, of satisfaction in their game persona and it becomes a vicious cycle and that's where it becomes a problem. Um, and, you know, all these studies tend to indicate that the biggest red flags for, for these gaming problems are the pre-existing psychological vulnerabilities in, in depression and, and social anxiety. Um, but, you know, one phrase that, that, um, Dimitri Williams used that I, that I like a lot is that it's really the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Mm-hmm. So people who have a, a normal palette of, of social outlets that they have, you know, friends they hang out with in real world, they have friends they hang out with online, that online portion can be a beneficial part of their social interaction. They're, cal- they're using the online part to keep in touch with people that they know in the real world, um, that they're geographically separated from. So it becomes this healthy part. You know, there, there are, romantic partners or families who play together and so parents can really watch how their how their children behave uh, when they attempt to be a leader in, in a group of adults um, and so it becomes a valuable window for them and so it can be a, um, a beneficial part of the palette. It becomes a detriment when it, it's the, the sole social outlet for example that it's the only place where people are, are socializing then it becomes really really dangerous and I think where the term you know online gaming addiction becomes a uh, a tricky term is where it gets people focusing on the technology rather than the, the psychology of the players. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a lot of therapists are realizing is it's a misnomer because in most of these cases, when you take the game away, the problem is still there. Um, and that, you know, simply taking someone away from the game doesn't really solve the problem. And so what a lot of therapists will talk about is really you know, either using the game or really trying to understand the underlying problems through the lens, you know, of the game, um, and to really help the person understand the the full set of problems that they're going through and why the game uh, is becoming a failed outlet for them. And so, the the problem is definitely there. But I think oftentimes when people talk about online gaming addiction, it becomes framed as a purely technological problem. Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes dangerous because it gets people thinking that taking the game away is the solution when it oftentimes is not. Sure. Now, our, when we talk about online games, and particularly the ones that allow for multiplayer and massively multiplayer um, usage, 
are those separate and distinct from, say, uh, uh, like a Halo or the various online um, sports games that allow multiple players? I'm not sure how many, but um, usually when we think of these, you know, MMOs, we think of those that dealing with a fantasy component. So are they inherently different, not just because of the amount of people who could play them, but because of the environments that are created? Um, I would argue yes, and um, I think I think there's a spectrum of, of games in different in different uh, established genres, and I think to the degree that you know the game allows you know players to, to interact uh, with other players online, that allows them to create you know their own, own avatar. Um, I think the the fantasy theme in and of itself you know matters a little bit less as long as there's some kind of game working context that allows players to interact together that encourages players to work together mm-hmm. and so to the degree that the, the game that we're looking at is is different from that then i'd say the findings may apply a little less uh, so for example the game doesn't have an a, in, you know an avatar or a way that uh the player uh, is is represented you know virtually for example in games like SimCity, where you have like this top-down godlike view and you never see a representation of yourself per se you only see the city growing then it probably applies less you know but you know especially in recent years we're seeing a lot of, of blending between established genres so we're seeing a lot of mmo like components you know multiplayer play persistent worlds uh customization of avatars in in games uh game genres that traditionally did not have them mm-hmm. where it was not as, as strong as a focus um you know so nowadays people are very familiar with playing you know shooter games in a multiplayer context because that's that's how the genre has grown um you know so again i think it depends on you know how many of, of those those elements so you know multiplayer play a persistent world um a, a virtual avatar and you know the a social forms of play that's how you know these these findings may or may not apply Right. Now, in your book, you you make a couple of statements that I want to ask you about, and and please feel free to speak at length about those. But one of these uh, phrases you use is about the illusory promises of online gaming. And I, I wanted to know if you could talk more about what these illusory promises were or are. Yeah, let me actually let me let me turn back to the race example, and we kind of touched on this in the beginning, and I, I I talked about the gender example a little, you know. So one of the, I think when you when you ask people about virtual worlds and this notion that you can, uh, you can really create your own avatar and really do your own thing, there really is a sense of trem- assumption of tremendous freedom. So in in, you know, in the 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 sandbox virtual world Second Life, uh, people can can really do anything and become anyone, you know. Uh, they can become a cat, you know, if they wanted to, they could, you know, fly in outer space or, you know, create their own uh, imaginary, you know, tribe in the Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. Oops, sorry, Jasmine, I tugged on my mic. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, what happens, the most striking thing about the uh, Second Life is that it, it's predominantly um, a, a bunch of people shopping in a virtual suburban America. And, um, you know, Philip Rosedale, who was the, the founder of Second Life, uh, you know, said that, you know, we, it could have been either Malibu or it could have been, uh, Mars. And it's pretty much Malibu in Second Life. And so, you know, for me, what was, what was fascinating is, you know, in a world where people can be anyone they want, why do they bother buying knockoff jeans at all? 
Um, but that's the predominant kind of, uh, norm in second life there, there are people doing very very innovative things but the majority of people are really doing virtual shopping let me turn back to the the race example because i think it's almost a little more poignant so you know there's this idea that you create your your new identity in, in a virtual world and so things like your your offline biological traits your your gender your your ethnicity should stop mattering um, but in an odd way the the opposite was true so let me so one one really um, ooh, uh, one really high tension period in online games was around 2007, 2008 when the phenomenon of gold farming popped up. Now, because these games are so are so um, tedious sometimes to play that you have to keep killing creatures to level up and it takes hours and hours of, you know, months and months of playtime to level up, you know, it makes sense that some players would like to bypass that, that time sink um, and it's possible because that these games are, are global and so you can play these games anywhere in the world. And so it becomes really financially attractive um, to pay someone in a developing country who has a much lower standard of living and labor cost to um, play the game for you. And so there are these power leveling services, and there are also these services who accumulate gold to sell to you for U.S. dollars. And it's financially viable because the, the labor costs and the standard of living in these other countries are so are, are much lower. Um, and in World of Warcraft, um, there was this huge furor over these what are called gold farmers because they were seen to disrupt the, the game for normal players. And in this period, there was um, the assumption that the majority of these gold farmers are based in China. And so these Chinese gold farmers are are playing the game and they're ruining the game because they are hogging these rich resource spots. They are driving up the game inflation. They're making it difficult for new players to play the game and they therefore must be exterminated. And so there were these player-made videos on YouTube um, showing groups of players banding together to harass and to to kind of herd these suspected Chinese gold farmers into a corner and then massacre them. Mm. And so, so, you know, there was one series of videos called uh, Farm the Farmer's Day uh, that kind of set these these massacres to a music video they're really quite grim um but they were portrayed in in the game community as um as a positive thing because you know they were kind of ridding these virtual worlds of of unwanted vermin um and you know during that period um there were so many threads on the official forums that really used um uh you know, Chinese as a synonym for gold farmer, that they were seen as the same package, that if someone was Chinese, they were there for a gold farmer. And so I, I really was interested in this phenomenon, and I went into the game, did a lot of surveys, and, you know, one of the things I asked was, well, how how on earth do you know whether someone's Chinese in an online game if you, all you see is this, you know, female night elf? You know, how do you know what ethnicity they are in the real world? And, um, you know, what some players said was, well, they had this litmus test. You know, if someone was behaving like a potential gold farmer, they would go up to them and speak to them in English. And if they could respond in English, well, then they'd leave them alone. But if they couldn't respond in English, they either ignore them or, you know, didn't spoke in, you know, broken English. 
they would you know harass or kill this character because they were they were they must have been a Chinese gold farmer. Um, there was this other really funny story on the forum where this French speaking uh, Canadian was uh, being approached by. Uh, uh, a player who was begging for for gold, and so he didn't want to deal with this player, so he responded in French. And this other player said, "You know, I can't believe you. You Chinese gold farmers are ruining the game because the player didn't respond in English." Mm. Um, and so there are these pervasive stereotypes. But what's interesting in the litmus test example is that it's not the behavior per se that was the the damning uh, component. It was the ability, the linguistic ability. And so two players doing the same thing, um, you know, they're interpreted very differently depending on the language that they speak and not what they're actually doing and behaving in the game. You know, I also dug a little deeper into, um, you know, the, the economics and why players were frustrated with these gold, these gold farmers. And it's really complicated. What was happening was that as the games got crowded in when in the heyday of, of World of Warcraft, there was a lot of competition for resources, you know, in these games. And so it created this very, you know, tense situation where it, it became psychologically comfortable to blame uh, an outgroup, you know, for this resource competition mm-hmm. uh, in the game. And, you know, I was looking back on other social science research to really help me understand this point. Um, and, you know, this happened... Uh, in the gold rush era in, in California when, uh, when Chinese immigrants set up, uh, laundry shops and curio shops. And there was this perceived, there was this perception by the, uh, the, the local whites that they were draining the, the economy by sending their, their, uh, their income back to China and that they were leaving, living very frugally and that they were ruining the economy. And that led to a period of, of discrimination and genocide in, in California in the, um, uh, in the in the South during uh, 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 the slavery era, you know, there, there's research that showed that at, when the the price of cotton lowered, the number of mob lynchings of blacks increased, you know, as a way to vent economic frustrations. Uh, in the EU, during times of economic prosperity, the the uh, the, the negative stereotypes of uh, ethnic minorities decreases, and when the economic uh, times are are bad, the the stereotypes of uh, and prejudices against economic minorities increase. And, you know, so the argument that I make in the book is that we're seeing that same phenomenon in an online game, mm-hmm. that when you have economic competition and, you know, a, a lack of resources, it becomes very comfortable psychologically to blame um, a, a, uh, an outgroup. And so play, you know, characters are, are, are made Chinese in a way uh, you know, this, this label of Chinese forced on these players to support this rhetoric of gold farmers destroying the economy when, when in fact, it's, it's very difficult to balance game economies that, you know, you have game developers, most of whom do not have a PhD in economics, creating a living, breathing world with thousands and millions of players trading, you know, thousands of goods, uh, gaining resources at, at different levels, and they're trying to balance this really, really complex economy. Um, and inflation actually always happens in these online games because when you kill a monster, it has to come back because otherwise there'd be nothing to do in the world very quickly. And so these these monsters constantly respond, and they're constantly giving you gold. And so there's this essentially 
open faucet of gold that's com- continually coming into the economy. So unless a game economy has ways of taking that money out in a really well-balanced way, you always have inflation in these game worlds. So, you know, game researchers have documented inflation even in, in textual online games, you know, back in the 90s. And it's just because it's a, it's because of how difficult it is to balance economies in these games you know but when you're you're framed in these virtual worlds um and the the competition is really stiff in the crowded economies um and you have all sorts of inflation going on um it it, what i argue in the book is it became really is psychologically enticing to blame these economic difficulties on the the minority group and so you know, in this virtual world of orcs and elves, uh, you know, where, where seemingly elves and humans can get along and there are no national boundaries, being Chinese really mattered, you know, mm-hmm. in a really bad way that being Chinese or being labeled Chinese could get you killed in the game. Um, and how strange it is that, you know, this, this offline ethnicity should, should play a role in, in how players interact in, in a virtual world. So then in virtual worlds, basically history repeats itself and basically the games reinforce uh, social norms. <laughs> and, and I think the reason they do that is because we, we don't really get a blank slate when we log into a, a, a virtual world. You know, people who are people <laughs> sorry one of the things i used to say you know there was this huge rush to do you know 3d conference rooms and virtual conference rooms in you know in second life and in the virtual world for a while you know and one of the things that i always used to say was well it doesn't work because boring people are still boring in 3d <laughs> and you knew that but you know people always had this assumption that 3d makes things more fun but it doesn't um and virtual worlds don't rewire our our the norms that we've learned through our lives and how and how our brains work, how our brains are hardwired to work in other places, and so you know the ways we interact with people. You know, we we did a study about personal space, you know, the personal distance between people, um, and whether those those physical rules apply in in a virtual world, and we found that they did. So there's there's what there's this theory, uh, this effect called the equilibrium theory. It's it, it's what I think of as the elevator effect. You know, so in the, in the physical world, we use um, distance and eye gaze to moderate feelings of intimacy. So when you're in an elevator and you're packed like sardines, no one maintains eye contact because at that distance, maintaining eye contact would be pain- would feel painfully intimate with strangers in an elevator. And so kind of moderate, you know, distance with with eye gaze to maintain a comfortable sense of intimacy. And so we found that in Second Life that is that we we had we, you know, we kind of took snapshots of groupings of players um in, in public settings. And we found that as players got closer, they were less likely to maintain eye contact with each other. Um, and, you know, we, we see these effects of how, um, you know, real world norms or, or patterns repeating themselves in the, in these virtual worlds. And it's, it's precisely because, you know, we don't get, we don't get a new brain when we step into a virtual world that we're very much, you know, stuck with the, the norms and, and the ways of interaction that we're used to with physical bodies. Um, you know, one of the examples I give in the book is, um, this classic study by Cliff Nass and Byron Reeves at Stanford University, um, where they looked at whether, whether people, are polite to computers, which makes no sense at first as a question. Um, what they did was they had people 
uh, take a tutoring lesson from a from a computer, a computer program. Um, so they're on a desktop computer. This was in the oh gosh, I don't remember whether this was in the the early nineties or the mid nineties. Um, and they took the tutorial, and then they would fill out a um, an evaluation of the computer, uh, either at the same computer or a different computer. And what they found really surprisingly was that people were more polite and they, they gave more positive evaluations when asked to evaluate the computer on the same computer mm-hmm. than if they evaluated on a different computer. And again, this still makes no sense why people would do that. And you know, how, how Cliff and Byron explain this is that we have a politeness norm in, in, in the real world that if you go to Thanksgiving dinner and your aunt just made dinner and your aunt says, <laughs> well, what do you think of the food? You're going to say, Oh, it was pretty good. You know, it was, it was, all, it was wonderful. You know, but if uh, your cousin drags you aside and says, Oh, what do you think of the food? You're probably going to be a little more honest, um, because you know, you're responding. You're not, you're not worried about hurting someone's feelings. And so what Cliff and Byron found was that we kind of have these, these, you know, modes of interaction and we treat a computer as if it were a human because we don't invent new modes of social interaction for every for you know new forms of digital media so we fall back on our established norms and so we're more polite to the computer that that uh, we were trained on because we're in fact worried about hurting the computer's feelings even though rationally and consciously no one believes that computers have feelings but we treat them as as social actors with with feelings and so you know again we have all these different um, you know, angles and findings that really show how how people um, react uh, in in virtual worlds uh, and with digital media using norms that they've learned uh, in the physical world. Great. Now, so if someone were in their local bookstore or browsing Amazon, as we all do sometimes, and they encounter your book, The Proteus Paradox, if you can give them a short blurb about what your book is about and, and the importance of your book, what would you say? Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'd say it's a book about um, about challenging the, the myths of freedom, fantasy, and fun in these virtual worlds and, you know, using a, a really guided cultural tour of what players do and what, what it means to live in these virtual worlds. And I think it's important um, because our lives are becoming increasingly virtual, um, you know, you know, these players, millions of players around the world spend 20 hours a week on average in these worlds. Um, a lot of them fall in love there. Um, a lot of companies are exploring, you know, virtual modes of, of work and interaction. Um, and so these worlds are really where we, you know, work, uh, live and play. And I think it's important to really understand what happens there and what it really means to have a virtual identity and what it doesn't mean to have, uh, you know, a digital identity um, because our lives are becoming, you know, increasingly virtual. And I think that the book really, the heart of the book, the question isn't really about games, like I mentioned earlier. It's really about understanding what it means to be human in in a digital world. And I think what's fascinating from a psychology, a social science research standpoint, is that understanding these worlds really helps, you know, reflect and reveal what it means to be human. It reflects, you know, our humanity and our own weaknesses and strengths back at us. And so that's why it's it's been a fascinating topic of research for me. Now, where can they find the book? Um, I said Amazon and the local bookstore, oh, but where, where can uh, they find the book? I think um, 
Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, you know, a lot of the the major retailers uh, online will have will have the book. Um, the digital version is also available. I know for sure on Amazon and 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 the Nook version. I'm not sure about the other versions, but definitely the the Kindle and the Nook version are available in in ebook format. So, what's next for you? You know, as I was writing in the in the in the six months, seven months, I was writing the book. Um, I I changed into a new job at, at Ubisoft. That was exactly the summer that I changed, and I also moved into a new house with my partner. And so those six months were like too much of good life happening at the same time. And it really took me a while to decompress from everything happening. So I've shifted into um, this new role at Ubisoft where I'm, uh, you know, fully in the game industry now. And it's, it's really been a blast, you know. So I used to be on the, the other side of the fence and really looking in at games as an academic researcher. And so I really wanted to see what it was like doing research directly in in a game company so um we're we're doing you know a lot of stuff now with direct uh you know game data we actually just gave a talk at the game developers conference Uh, my colleague nick dushino and i uh, we've worked together for a long time we gave a talk um using some of that data and so we're you know we're in a game company now but we're still able to do research and still able to publicize that research so that's what I'm. I'm keeping myself busy with in, in the near term, um, and it's it's been it's been a really a great great journey in in uh, in studying online games over for more than a decade, and I'm I'm curious myself to know where this all leads. <laughs> now, can uh, our listeners read any of your writings online? Do you have a blog or? Uh, yeah, so I have a, a website, uh, nickye.com, n-i-c-k-y-e-e.com. So I. I all my uh, academic, academic papers, there's actually a free PDF of the introduction chapter to the book that's available there. It's linked on the main page. Um, and, you know, there's a link to the, the Daedalus project. So the Daedalus project was geared towards gamers. There's a little bit more jargon in it, but, you know, if any of the listeners are gamers or interested in, you know, uh, a bloggish uh, format for those earlier findings, they'll, all, they'll find that there. So, um, you know, lots of writing, you know, for different audiences, you, you'll find that link to from my website. Great. Well, Nick, thank you very much for coming on and talking about your new book, The Proteus Paradox, how online games and virtual worlds change us and how they don't. Thanks so much, Jasmine. This was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate the invitation. No problem. This has been New Books and Technology. I was your host, Jasmine McNeely. Thank you.